Welcome to the New Books Network. It became really clear that what had happened to me was absolutely a miracle. They did all kinds of tests on me. The woman who, the doctor who had been treating me before my collapse, and it shown me that my liver enzymes were 209. She ran full blood work on me and showed me the new blood work saying, Joe, you're perfectly normal. Your liver is normal. Yeah. And I, I, I basically looked her right in the eye because people had been using that word miracle about me. And I said, is what happened to me in miracle? She said, absolutely. There's no explanation, Joe. It doesn't exist. Lifelong alcoholic Joe McGivney drank himself into brain damage and permanent disability. But the day after being placed into the assisted care he would need for the rest of his life, he suddenly sprang back to full recovery and restored health. It was a medical impossibility. And it's something he credits the intercession of blessed Father Michael McGivney, his distant relative, who's also the founder of the Knights of Columbus in the 19th century, and who's now being considered for canonization on the basis of recorded intercessory miracles like the one that Joe experienced two years ago. So Joe's testimony, now a book, You're a Miracle, is the topic of our conversation today on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people the interesting questions. And they share their conclusions, explaining what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking to Joe McGivney. After doing serious brain damage to himself, he wrote the book, You're a Miracle which are the words that he heard from a psychiatrist he met at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting two years ago. Uh, what he'd heard earlier from his doctors, that there was no medical explanation for his recovery, was echoed by this total stranger. Uh, he had suffered from Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, a deficiency of thiamine vitamin B1, which affects memory, sense of reality, walking, and seeing. It happens to some people who suffer from extreme cases of alcoholism, sometimes because of malnutrition, for example, to British soldiers who were Japanese prisoners of war in Singapore in the 1940s. No one recovers. Some people die. Some people live with debilitating brain damage their whole lives in assisted care. But after drinking his whole life and doubling down on the pattern during COVID, Joe McGivney developed this condition and lost his mind for nine weeks. Then, overnight, he got it back, with all systems back to normal, including liver enzymes that went from 209, the highest his doctor had ever seen, back down to 18, which is perfectly normal. But he had a lot of people praying for him, including for the intercession of a sainted man with the same last name as he, Father F Michael McGivney, founder of the Knights of Columbus, the largest Catholic fraternal organization in the world, founded in 1882 in Connecticut, a mutual aid organization for poor immigrants, such as the Irish-American uh, community that Father McGivney had served and indeed was a member of himself. The story is a tremendous miracle and Unlike many miracles which happened in the Middle Ages, this one happened a couple of years ago. And the man I'm talking today is a living, breathing, walking Lazarus for the 21st century. So what a pleasure and honor to have you as our guest on Almost Good Catholics. Thank you for that beautiful introduction, Chris. Um, wow, humbled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Um, do, you have a, do you have any jokes to share with our, with our people to get us started? <laughs> Okay, I'll go with a very uh, appropriate, really funny, but yet really silly dad joke. Um, how come the teddy bear wouldn't eat his dinner? I don't know. Because he was stuffed. <laughs> so um, you, you're a dad, I'm a dad, I'm going to use that. And uh, uh, tell, us, tell us your story. Well, I guess might make sense to start at the beginning. Um, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago in a predominantly Irish Catholic neighborhood. Um, I would definitely was the you know, typical cradle Catholic. I think I was baptized within 10 days of my birth. 
made all the sacraments and uh, was raised in a beautiful, loving, supportive family environment. Um, both my mother and father uh, were, you know, good practicing Catholics at the time. And again, they, they could not have been more loving and supportive of, of me in my childhood. It was kind of like a Norman Rockwell painting. Um, so, you know, during my youth, you know, as I was going to church and, you know, participating in the sacraments when I was young, when I look back, probably out of because of my own selfishness or just lack of interest, I, I really never connected with the church. I, you know, I knew the prayers and I went to church on Sunday, uh, but it, I, I really never felt that, you know, relationship with God or that connection to the church. Um, after elementary school, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school called Brother Rice High School in Chicago that was taught by the Irish Christian Brothers. And one would have thought that would have built an even stronger Catholic foundation for me, but it, it just didn't. Uh, and then once I went off to college, I attended the University of Illinois in um, Champaign-Urbana, you know, a very large university, Big Ten school. And... I no longer had to go to church, so I just stopped. And that really followed me through my adulthood. I, I could probably count on two hands the number of times I walked into a church after leaving Brother Rice High School uh, up until just a couple of years ago. Uh, and like the only time I went to, went to Mass was if it was a funeral or a wedding. Yeah. Can I ask you, you have a sense of why? why that happens. I, I remember being very much just like you as a teenager. My parents would take me to, we're Polish immigrants. They would take me to church every Sunday and I would just flip to the back of the book and memorize Battle Hymn the Republic for an hour. Or I would do exercises where I was holding my breath and see if I could beat my record. Cause I was like, <laughs> why am I going back to mass? I already know how it ends. I know how it went last week. I know how it's going to go next week. Is it just because we have everything we already need? So we have no, we're so self-sufficient that we don't, we're, we're just, we're just down here. Why does that happen to teenage boys? You know, I think it's a great point. It's not only self-sufficient, but for me, um, self-absorbed. Hmm. You know, I didn't see what was in it for me. You know, what was the church doing for me? What, what yeah. God, I didn't see he was doing anything for me. So what was, you know, what was the point? Uh, again, that just I was viewing the world even back then in my youth as through this very selfish lens. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's kind of the early formation or the faith formation that I had or lack thereof on my part. Um, but also during my youth, that's where my love affair with alcohol began. Uh, growing up, I was I was actually a really good student. Uh, I was a pretty solid, good athlete. I, you know, was, I wouldn't say I was one of the cool kids, but I, you know, I, I, I also wasn't, you know, completely um, socially awkward, you know, and I, but I always had this feeling that I didn't belong. It was like, I was on the outside looking in, I wasn't cool enough. I wasn't smart enough i wasn't good enough as an athlete you know when it came to the girls you know they weren't paying that much attention to me and i just felt like i didn't belong anywhere um that all changed uh, on a warm summer night during the in chicago uh, just before i entered the eighth grade uh there were six of us guys hanging out in one of my buddy's front yards and his brother came walking out of the house and someone asked, hey, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the liquor store. And one of us chimed in and said, will you get some beer for us? And he said, if you give me the money, I will. Hmm. And we reached into our pockets, put some money together. And he came back with three six packs of old style beer, which, by the way, is the most awful beer ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was really cheap. It's a Chicago thing. Yeah. Um, so there were 
three beers for each of us, each of the six of us. And I remember popping the top and nearly vomiting as I was trying to get that first beer down. But I also noticed that I started to feel different. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got to that third beer, I felt really, really good. It was as, it was as though all of my fears, my self-doubt just drifted away. And suddenly I was now funny and I was charming and I was confident and and I loved that feeling. Um, I also remember very well the following morning when I woke up <laughs> my first hangover. Yeah. Uh, you know, my parents, I had been, I was able to sneak past my parents when I came home that night. You know, they didn't know that I had been drinking. You know, I went to my room, closed the door, woke up the next morning feeling awful. And I think for a normal person, they would have then said, I'm never doing that again. Mm -hmm. I was the opposite. I couldn't wait to do it again. And starting then, I was became a weekend warrior. Yeah. I was drinking in along with my friends virtually every weekend um, through high school. And then in the later part of my high school career, I, during my junior and senior year, I also started randomly drinking during the week as well with a small group of friends of ours. You know, we'd come home after school to somebody's house where the parents weren't home yet, and we'd raid the liquor cabinet yeah. for no other reason other than that it just felt good. Yeah. <laughs> So then from there, that's uh, such a young age. That's such a young age that they just fly under the radar the whole time. Because if you're going to eighth grade, you're, you know, 12 or 13, you're still in your parents uh, supervision for a whole nother four years. I think that happens to a lot of us in college. Certainly, I was doing shenanigans in, in college when we suddenly have all this freedom. But how, how did this happen as a, as a teenager in high school? You know, it, it, where I grew up, it was I would say it was culturally accepted and acceptable. Hmm. Um, you know, being good Irish Catholics, we celebrated everything, you know, from baptisms to funerals and everything in between. Any any excuse to have a party, gotcha. a celebration, and alcohol always played a pivoted role in all those celebrations. Um, thankfully, my parents were not alcoholics. Uh not even close they you know they drank but very socially and occasionally but when you look at my father's side of my family tree alcoholism was everywhere mm. um in fact you know in my own with me and my two sisters uh, i was the oldest of three even though my parents were not alcoholics certainly i was and my middle sister aaron um her alcoholism and prescription prescribed uh, drug abuse um, took her life. Mm. So two of the three of my mom and dad's kids certainly suffered from the disease of alcoholism. And when I look at, again, the other parts of my family tree, it's, it's common, very common. Gotcha. And again, just culturally in the neighborhood we grew up with, I remember being literally again in eighth grade and one of my friend's um, parents would buy alcohol for us wow but we had a rule that if we had to spend the night at their house and you know we were too young to even drive we didn't even have car keys <laughs> but they they in their rationalization was you know they if we they knew we were going to be out drinking so it was like if they were going to do that we'd rather you all drink under our supervision than running the streets yeah that makes sense <laughs> So that 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 was just kind of how the, how it was on the south side of Chicago back in those days. Yeah, and then the, we're, we're, this is the 1970s, I'm guessing. Yeah, I graduated uh, high school in 1981. So yeah, that would have been the yeah. late 1970s. Yeah. So then what happens? So I, you know, was was kind of off to the races with my alcoholism. At, um, I left uh, University of Illinois, went to work in the investment industry. My father had a small investment firm. And I now found myself elbow to elbow with adults that were, you know, had mortgages and children. I was a young, you know, 20 something kid, basically. And uh, I immediately found my people 
um, of that group, you know, the, the group of working adults, many of them after a hard day's work went home to their families and to their kids' athletic events and all that. But there was also another group that went right to the bar. Mm-hmm. And I joined that group mm-hmm. and I felt <laughs> like I fit in again. Yeah. So after that, during my late 20s, early 30s, I was living in downtown Chicago as a single guy. And there was Chicago is a fun, fun place to live when you're a young single person. And we there was I, I drink. I was now drinking every single day. Mm-hmm. Not to say that it was blackout drunk every day because I wasn't. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I can remember a day where I did not have at least one beer or one glass of vodka, truthfully. Um Ultimately ended up meeting my first wife, having my two wonderful children, incredible children, Allie and Colin, who are now young adults. But of course, as a result of my alcoholism, that first marriage, you know, I burned it down. Fortunately, I was able to, you know, share custody and I, the children, my kids, Allie and Colin, spent half the time with me and half the time with their mother. Soon after that first divorce, though, I then met the love of my life, my beautiful angel, Nicole. And we ultimately became married. Um, not only was she just an amazing woman, an amazing wife, but she was an amazing stepfather for my children. Stepmother. I'm sorry, stepmother. <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, I was still an alcoholic. Yeah. And it, over a period of a few years, uh, my drinking continued and my alcoholism continued to progress like it usually does. And I started now on weekends uh, w- overdoing it often to the point where I was becoming a blackout drunk on the weekends. Um, and I remember countless mornings on a, on a Saturday morning where I'd wake up after a Friday night of drinking um, not sure what even Nicole and I had talked about that night, our night. We're not sure of whether or not I was kind and nice to her as I should have been because there's sometimes in those blackout moments, I wasn't, you know, easy to be around. I was, you know, sure. short bird and just uh, kind of a jerk, you know, you know, physical abuse. But I was just, you know, I was an alcoholic. I was drunk. Yeah. Now, the other interesting part of that story, too, though, is I, you know, from as far as my career goes, I was a highly functioning alcoholic. Uh, I had did very, very well financially. Um, my job at that, I had found a little niche in the investment world that I worked in, where my primary role was to deepen relationships and build relationships with some of our larger clients. And that often involved entertaining them, you know, playing golf, going to, you know, other sporting events, Mm -hmm. fancy dinners at wonderful steakhouses. And that was part of my role. And so I had kind of found my dream job. Yeah. And anyway, so that continued to progress and Nicole, the love of my life, ultimately had had enough. And she left me. Uh, but by the grace of God, over a period of a few months, we came back together, started seeing a therapist. We were already divorced, but we went and started seeing a therapist. And we reached an agreement about my drinking. And it was that I would no longer be a blackout drunk, that I would now drink like a gentleman. <laughs> Yes. And that worked. Yes. For a while. Yes. And then it worked until the beginning of COVID. Yeah. At which point your kids are grown. Yeah. They, right? it, at that point, my, my daughter is now in college and my son was a junior or uh, he would have been a junior in high school uh, when COVID had kicked in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my daughter, for example, was a COVID kid. She never had a high school graduation. She never had a prom. Um, yeah. But, yeah. But she 
ultimately actually just graduated college. Uh, hey, congratulations. Yeah. So anyway, so everything changed when COVID began. Um, I, my, all of my fears, a lot of them about the financial stability of my family just started spiraling. The firm I, you know, like many people, the firm I worked for essentially closed, shut down. You know, my income had dropped to nearly zero. Uh, my wife, Nicole, was still going to school, uh, still working. She's a kindergarten teacher in mm -hmm. a private school. So she she was bringing in some income, but it was certainly not enough to cover the lifestyle that we had. We had to pay the mortgage and the car payments. And the, I've got one kid on the way to in college, one on the way. And my fears just overwhelmed me. And rather than turn to my family, my friends, my faith, or my church, I just turned to vodka. Yeah. And beginning in early March of 2020, I de developed a medication ritual for myself where at, at 7 a.m., Nicole would leave to go to school. And I would give her a little bit of a head start. I was out the door soon after, and I found a local liquor store about 20 minutes away that opened at 7 in the morning. And I was the first guy to walk into the store every day. Yeah. And I would buy three little the mini bottles like you get on airplanes, um, three little bottles of vodka. And I would literally drink those three in the parking lot at 7.15 or 7.20 in the morning. Now, why three? Well, I was very calculating. I knew that three shots of vodka would take me to 0 0.075 as far as my blood alcohol level, meaning legally I could drop. To, uh, the reason I knew this is I had my own personal breathalyzer that I bought online where I could check myself throughout the day. Mm -hmm. I learned that three three shots took took me to 0.075, and I also learned that it took one hour for my body to metabolize one shot. So two hours later, now nine o'clock in the morning, I could do two more shots. So I did. Now the local liquor store was that was five minutes away was open. So I had done my three shots at seven a.m. I would do two more at nine two more at 11 a.m., two more at 1 p.m., two more at 3 p.m. 5 p.m., my wife comes home. We would go to the grocery store. It's COVID. There's not much going on. We'd get food, and I would sidetrack into the liquor store, and I no longer had to worry about driving for that day. Mm -hmm. So I would come out of that liquor store with three more shots of vodka and two bottles of wine to get me through the night. And I did that every single day from early March of 2020 until December 30th. Right. And if you add them up, three plus two plus two plus two plus two plus three, that's a whole fifth of vodka. Uh, and what it are you is, doing in between? Are you on Zoom calls or answering emails? What are you doing for those two I, hours while you're uh, Sometimes there were there was there were Zoom calls. Yeah. Um, you know, my employer again, my income went to zero, but you know, they kind of uh improvised during COVID and they were doing a lot of training and education for us and so on. Um uh, but that did not take up a whole lot of time. Yeah. And I technically was not drunk. Yeah. So but my brain was being soaked in vodka morning, noon, and night. It literally, when I would get up in the morning, I'd hit that breathalyzer the first thing I did to make sure I was down back down to 0, 0.0, and then I rushed to the liquor store. Yeah. So my, my body never rested, never got a break. That's so... I've never heard of a case like this because you are so in control <laughs> and so out of control simultaneously. Right. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's the disease. It's the insanity of of, of full blown alcoholism. Yeah. So, December thirtieth. I, th I think uh, you're like the the slave who is entrusted with the management of somebody's great estate because you're entirely enslaved, but you're so competent and so able 
to figure out how to how to walk that razor's edge. That's a really good way to put it, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very true. So December 30th of 2020 became the night that would forever alter the course of my life. Um, Nicole and I had decided to beat the New Year's Eve rush. There were, in, down here in Florida, restaurants were now beginning to open at that point. And Nicole and I went out to dinner on December 30th, rather than go out on New Year's Eve and fight the crowds and so on. And after dinner, which of course involved more drinking for me, we went back to the house. Uh, and by the way, I, everything I'm going to talk about it right now, I, I have no memory of, no mm -hmm. personal memory of. Um, yeah. And in your book, this chapter is written by Nicole, right? It's from her first person perspective. It is yeah. indeed. Yes. Uh, so the, what, the, all I know about that period, I learned from Nicole, and I also learned from the medical records of all the institutions that I had been in. We'll get to that. So December 30th, I, I collapse on the living room floor of our home. It's around 11 o'clock at night. Nicole had already gone upstairs, gone to sleep. Uh, I stayed downstairs drinking and watching, you know, TV. And I, apparently when I collapsed, I collapsed to the floor and was uneven, unable to even lift myself up or even get on my knees. And thankfully, I had my cell phone in my hand when I went down. And apparently I called Nicole and she, grace of God, had a ringer on on her phone. She picked up and I said to her, Nicole, I need your help. Something's wrong. And she came downstairs to find me again on this, you know, completely incapacitated on the floor, living room floor. And somehow she managed to get me to a hospital. Uh, she was afraid that maybe I was having a stroke because I could, again, I couldn't even barely walk. Uh, I was making no sense. I was speaking in gibberish. And she it races me to a hospital. It's it's COVID. So they meet her at the emergency room doors, put me in a wheelchair and send her home. They're like, you can't come in. So they admitted me to Jupiter Medical Center, a local hospital. Very quickly field figured out that I was going through um, alcohol withdrawal. And but I, I withdrawal, they figured out a few days later. At first, they're trying to figure out whether I had a stroke. Um, they ran all kinds of tests. And over the following few days in that first hospital, they it became it was pretty touch and go for me. I, I nearly died. I was in the intensive care unit for a number of days. They got me stabilized. They got me detoxed from alcohol over a period of you know, seven to 10 days. But cognitively, I was getting worse. You know, for most people, even a really hardcore alcoholic, you know, once they get you physically detoxed safely in a medical environment, and then they send you home. But I was getting crazier each and every day. So over the next nine weeks, I was in a number of institutions, three hospitals included, with my last stop being a locked psych ward at St. Mary's Hospital in West Palm Beach. And at that point, they had figured out what I had. And I had advanced Korsakoff psychosis, um, which is brought on, like you said, there's a thiamine deficiency, they believe, is what triggers this series of events. But there's, there's a lot of medical research uh, to still be done on that because they can't figure out you know, why some people that abuse alcohol progress all the way to that psychosis and others don't. And the thiamine part of it, they speculate might be play a role. And I've read a lot of the medical research on this, but there's still no explanation for, you know, out of 100 people that get that diagnosis, 80 of them never come back. Mm -hmm. 20 of them die. I got past that hurdle. But that leaves the remaining 80 out of 100 that will all be have some kind of permanent disability, um, most of which will end up like I was, where you're you're just in your own little world 
hallucinating. Um, in my case, I was frequently restrained. I was violent. I was a danger to myself, they said, to the other patients. Long story short, they Nicole was told and my family was told that, hey, he's going to be this way for the rest of his life. We're so sorry, but we can't hold him here anymore. We're going to send him home. And, you know, poor Nicole, who's 90 pounds soaking wet, you know, they're telling her your violent, hallucinating, crazy husband's going to go home with you soon. So you got to figure out that plan, <laughs> which, of course, taking me home for her was not an option. Yeah. So they basically said, you know, you need to find a forever home for him because um, can't stay here. By again, by the grace of God, Nicole found a treatment facility here locally that agreed to hold me for 30 days, essentially to buy her time. And Nicole was also working very closely with one of my relatives, my aunt Jerry. She's a McGibbon. She's my nice. father's sister. And Aunt Jerry's a very skilled nurse and was talking to the doctors and, you know, relaying in English what all the doctors were saying. And she was relaying those messages to my family, including Nicole. So Aunt Jerry and Nicole are scrambling, both doing research to find a permanent home for, home for me. Nicole finds that local treatment facility that says we'll hold them for 30 days. Not 31, 30. Mm -hmm. You got to find, figure this out. They checked me, they transported me from the lock psych ward directly into that treatment facility. They put me to bed and I woke up the following morning completely healed with Raised no medical, uh, oh, medical, cognitive, physical deficits of any kind. Right. I was fully healed. Which is physically impossible. Physically impossible. Yeah. No medical explanation. Yeah. So long story short, so I'm in this treatment facility. I'm now awake. I have no idea how I had gotten there, where I was. You know, they filled in all those blanks for me. And uh, my, I, I now had a goal. Show you how powerful this alcoholism can be. I still was not convinced that I had a drinking problem. <laughs> and my only goal at that point is okay i gotta be here i learned for 30 days i said i need to get out way before 30 days because i need to get to nicole as fast as i can to mm -hmm. convince her to stay with me um and i was i i, I again was that was my mission was not get sober my mission was not give up alcohol my mission was get the hell out of there so yeah. i get so long story short about a week week and a half in it's COVID again so nicole can't come see me but the, my therapist sets up a conference call with nicole my therapist and me so i'm sitting in the therapist's office he calls nicole she's on speakerphone and he says uh you know we the minute she picked up the phone i could tell in her voice that this conversation was not gonna go well. And after a little small talk, Nicole said, Joe, she's now crying. And she said, Joe, you you really don't understand the have any idea what you really have been through, do you? And I said, truthfully, I don't, you know, mm -hmm. I can't wrap my head around it. She said, well, I am so, so happy that you're doing well, but I can't do this anymore. And when you get home, I've already packed up. I've already contacted a lawyer. We're getting a divorce. Uh, she said, when you get out of there, talk to your Aunt Jerry. She'll fill in all the blanks for you. But I'm done. I can't do this anymore. The therapist tries to interrupt the call and, and says, Nicole, wait, you know, let's hit the pause button here. You don't need to make these decisions today. Why don't we schedule another call? And Nicole, Nicole interrupts him and says, there will be no other call and hangs up the phone. Yeah. And so in that moment, I, I felt more broken than I had ever felt in my life. I'm literally crying in this therapist's office. Uh, I felt like 
someone had beaten me with a baseball bat or run over me with a truck. And he looks me in the eye and he says, Joe, I'm so sorry, but this, you, you need to go to an AA meeting and there's one starting in five minutes. And I had some words for him. <laughs> um, words I won't repeat on a nice camera. <laughs> and somehow he convinced AA meetings were not required for us to attend. Mm -hmm. And he said, he convinced me to go. And it would have been 6.30 p.m. on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday night, because those are the nights they did AA meetings. And in that first meeting of AA, I had never been to an AA meeting before. I didn't know what to expect. So I'm in this room with about 50 people sitting at tables and they read the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous at the beginning. And step number three says, we made a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God. And I was like, whoa. Mm -hmm. It was almost like a little whisper in my head saying, pay attention now. And I was laser focused on that. I said, wait a minute made a decision to turn my life and my will over to God. I know God. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm a Catholic. If that's the key, I need to figure that out, how to do that. Then I, after this moment of brief moment of hope, I'm now feeling a sense of dread because what would God want to do with me? If the key to this program of recovery lies in turning my will and life over to God. Now I'm a little terrified that God's going to want no part of it mm. for me because I had walked away from my church and from my faith years and years ago. I, you know, frankly was not a good human being. You know, I was an alcoholic. Uh, you know, I was selfish and flawed and, Anyway, so after they read the steps, like most AA meetings, there was a speaker. This man got up and told his story. And his story sounded exactly like mine. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow. And he shared at the end of how he had not only, you know, put his life back together again, but by working through the steps and figuring out how to surrender everything to God. He was living a life that was filled now with joy and peace and serenity and happiness. He had gotten his family back. He was, you know, it, and I, you could see it on his face. This guy was someone I wanted to be like. And that's when I went all in. So mm -hmm. I used my time in the treatment facility. Um, but on the way out, a pivotal moment in my life, they're doing discharge paperwork on me and this woman was doing it, says, Joe, what's, what's your plan from here? You're going home. What are you going to tell me what's going to, what you're going to do? And I flippantly looked at her and said, don't worry, I got this. <laughs> and she chuckles like you just did. And she said, Joe, you don't got this. You know, God may have healed you physically, but you're still an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. She said, when you, you need a plan. She said, and I can tell you're, you're, you're not going to really want to hear what I have to say anyway, but I'm going to ask you to promise yourself two things. And she challenged. She said, when you get out of, to, out of here within 24 hours, you need to find an AA meeting and start looking for a sponsor. It's like, and she's like, like, within 24 hours, Joe. Now, this is critically important. And I said, okay, I, I can do that. And then the other thing she did, she Googled surrender prayer in all caps. And she showed it to me. And she, I don't know, this again, grace to God moment. She found this very long Catholic prayer that's just, you know, black type on a white background. And I, it, it, that day when I searched, you know, got home, I Googled surrender prayer in all caps, like she asked, and it showed up at the top of the results list. Most days when I ch check it nowadays, it's four or five down. But that day, right at the top. Yeah. 
and I printed it and I started praying it every day. So after that first day, I got to an AA meeting, I found a sponsor, a man who had, I had done some business with a number of years ago, and somewhere along the line mentioned to me that he was in recovery. He was the only one person I knew that ever admitted that, so I called him. And he took me to my first meeting out in the real world and started working the steps. And, you know, through the beauty of working through the steps of AA, my life just began to transform, change. And my cravings, my obsession, my compulsion to drink went away. God lifted that. And for the first time in my life, I was developing a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And through that, you know, in telling my story to others and to seeing the doctors that were now treating me, it became really clear that what had happened to me was absolutely a miracle. They did all kinds of tests on me. The woman who, the doctor who had been treating me before my collapse and had shown me that my liver enzymes were 209. She ran full blood work on me and showed me the new blood work saying, Joe, you're perfectly normal. Your liver is normal. Yeah. And I, I, I basically looked her right in the eye because people had been using that word miracle about me. And I said, is what happened to me a miracle? She said, absolutely. There's no explanation, Joe. It doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> so... I'm going, working my way through the program of AA, part of which is we should make a commitment to serve others, put others before ourselves. And I said, wait, hmm. And by the way, I'd started going back to church. Mm. I was every Sunday. And I said, I know how I can give back. Why don't I join the Knights of Columbus? After all, my relative is the founder and so I, I learned that there was a Knights of Columbus um, council affiliated with the church I was going to, and I joined the Knights. <clears throat> so a few days after I joined, I had a phone call with my Aunt Jerry. She and I had started this tradition, this ritual of a Saturday morning phone call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we started that right after I got out of treatment. And it was her way of checking in on me, providing support, checking in on me, encouragement, checking in on me. <laughs> <laughs> and in that call, right after I joined the Knights, I told her, I said, Jerry, I joined the Knights of Columbus. And she starts crying. Oh, wow. Oh, no. What I do now? <laughs> she says, Joey, I never told you this, but when you were sick, I was praying to anyone who would listen. I was praying to Jesus. I was praying to God. I was praying to Mary, praying to our relatives. But I was fervently praying to blessed Michael. And I'm looking at his picture right now. Mm -hmm. In that moment for me, up until then, I knew I was a miracle. But I, in the back of my mind, often struggled with why. Why did God save me? I certainly wasn't the only struggling alcoholic in the world. I certainly wasn't the only person with Korsakoff psychosis in the world. I certainly wasn't a good Catholic. I was a sinner with a capital S. Why did he choose to save me? And came to believe that Jerry's prayers to Father Michael resulted, we believe, in Father Michael interceding for me. And I, that's how I stand here today. A lot of people, a lot of, you know, innocent people die all the time in car accidents or whatever, all the, all the time. And we often, I think we think, oh, how could a just God let good things happen? I mean, bad things happen to good people. Well, from the Catholic point of view, this is this whole world is just a very short experience on our way back home. But at the same time, God is so interested in relationship with us and communication with us that he was able to use you, such an imperfect and broken tool to reach all of us down here through this great saint. 
uh, at the moment he's blessed, but there, you know, you, there's a number of miracles. There's a number of, um, uh, there's a canonization process that you can read about at, uh, um, at the website that, that I'll link to below. There was one in 2015 about a, a family who had a child, um, and you write about it in your book, I'm gonna, on page 62. Yeah, Little Mikey Shackle. Yes, thank you. Little Mikey, little, uh, um, little Mikey Shackle. Uh, his father was a Knight of Columbus and well acquainted with Father McGivney's legacy, right? And he and his wife prayed specifically for Father McGivney to intercede for their baby in heaven because that kid had a 0% chance of survival um, because of, of something called fetal hydrops. But then a follow-up ultrasound revealed no trace of fetal hydrops, and the baby boy is a joyful member of their family to this day. So that's, you know, for a tiny baby, such a dramatic miracle. And then now you, for, you know, for a, a, a fully grown man, another miracle like this, it's such a mystery. You know, why this and not that? Why here and not there? Um, yeah, it, it is indeed a mystery in the you know the I, I've obviously played this through it's countless times in my head. Um, maybe, maybe part of why I was you know was healed was God knew I would not keep the secret. Yeah, and God knew that I would share this beautiful story about it's you know it's really my and Nicole's experience from start to finish this book and this story is God. Mm -hmm. you know, we're just his humble instruments. And, um, you know, the other kind of interesting thing. So when you go back to blessed Michael, um, he was canonized on October 31st of 2020. So just about two months, almost to the day. Beatified, beatified. So beatified, I'm sorry. Yes. Thank you. Uh, almost two months to the day before I went down. Um, my grandfather, now my great-grandfather and Father Michael are believed to be second cousins. So my great-grandfather immigrated from Ireland um, and ended up in Chicago. Father Michael's parents immigrated from Ireland, ended up in Waterbury, Connecticut, where Father Michael was born and where he founded the Knights of Columbus. My grandfather on my father's side, Andrew McGivney, not only was a devout Catholic, he was a prominent figure in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Uh, he was an attorney, and he did a lot of pro bono legal work for the diocese. And he was also, back then, in the Chicago Diocese, they had a monthly um, publication that was delivered to every parish, kind of like a bulletin. You know, they would deliver stacks of this thing. Once a month, the publication was called The New World, and he was the lay editor of that magazine. So, uber Catholic. So, I have this in my own imagination, this meeting up in heaven, where my great, or my grandfather, Andrew, who's a knight and a devout Catholic, um, along with some of my other relatives, you know, seeks out Blessed Michael. It says, Father, one of our own needs your help really yeah. right now. Who knows? It's, it's something we like to think about, or at least I do. Is that, and, and one other thing, too, the why me, why me. When Father Michael received his first parish assignment at St. Mary's Church in New Haven, Connecticut, which is where the Knights were founded, one of his very first ministries was to create a temperance society mm -hmm. the struggling alcoholic families that he saw in his parish. Yeah, so if you have to go back to the 19th century, this is a time when Irish immigrants to the United States were the poorest of the poor, looked down upon by the waspy Americans who had been here longer. And they're, you know, they're, they're Catholics, they're foreign, they're their uh, Irish need not apply sort of a thing. And if there was no, you know, federal government uh, doing much of anything. So if you're, if you died and you had a wife and some kids, like they were out of luck. And uh, so Father uh, Michael organized the Knights of Columbus to take care of widows and orphans, which is about as 
biblical a charge as as you can be so that they wouldn't be taken away from the mother and families wouldn't be broken up and things like things like that and so um you know i think we we forget this part of the story because today to be an irish american is just like anything else but back then it was a really hard really hard time and you know this british empire that conquered the world and had virginia planters lording it over you know black people and pushing American Indians out West. They started by invading Ireland first. And um, they started by, the whole British empire started in Ireland. And thank goodness that we have this wonderful Republic. And thank you for the British empire as well, that, you know, people have individual rights and they have dignity and they have all these things, but it took a long time and it took a long time to get from that to where we have today, where everybody, no matter where, what you look like or where you come from, you're an American. Uh, this is a time that's uh, hard to imagine, I think, for the 21st century person saying, what's the big deal? What are you talking about? Um, and I, I don't know if we know much about it. Like you could look at that um, movie, uh, Gangs of New York, maybe, or Far and Away, and you kind of get a glimpse of it. But uh, he he was doing a tremendous, a tremendous thing, uh, um, Father McGivney. And likewise, the Knights of Columbus. I was not much, I'm not much aware of the Knights of Columbus. I found out a lot more about it uh, reading about it uh, this weekend while I was thinking about you and your book. Um, so you're a knight. The, what do the knights do today? How many are are there? Uh, uh, are there I, I believe internationally we're pushing 2 million oh, Knights wow. of Columbus members. Um, the Knights, are, Knights of Columbus is built on the pillars of charity, unity, fraternity, and um, patriotism and the knights is involved in you know at the council level you know it's the the whole organization is made up of local councils um who run independently um it is not run by the knights of columbus it is not run by the church it serves the church but it is completely separated and that was by father mcgivney's intentional design Hmm. Uh, and you know the different types of charity that the organization does both at the local level and internationally um you know things like the special olympics things like um local shelters for unwed mothers pregnancy centers where women that are trying to make a decision on whether to keep their child or not can go in and get an ultrasound and and get you know, access to resources and so on. Um, so the, in, you know, another very recent international example is when Russia um, invaded Ukraine, the Knights of Columbus had existing Knights of Columbus councils in Poland where they set up refugee centers. They had boots on the ground right there already. And, you know, Knights of Columbus said headquarters started sending you know, millions of dollars worth of relief uh, supplies and efforts. And again, they, they because they had Knights of Columbus members right on the ground at the border, they were there before the Red Cross was there. <clears throat> so it's, yeah, the organization it is really, um, to this day, carrying on Father Michael's legacy of caring for the needy and the outcast and the poor. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Um, well, I appreciate that it's almost six o'clock uh, of your nine o'clock, and I got to wake up some kids here and take them over to school. <laughs> what, are, what have we forgotten to talk about? What else should we say that I? No, I think really, you know, I just want to end with we, you know, why we wrote this book. Um, it, it was kind of threefold. Number one was to raise awareness for the cause of canonization for Blessed Michael. Mm -hmm. um, since he was beatified, he has, there have been a number of miracles, my, my own included, that have been documented by the Knights. Father Michael is, has proven to be a pretty powerful intercessor. So we encourage people not only to prepare, pray for his canonization, pray for a miracle, yeah. pray for his intercession. And, you know, if you go to fathermcgivney.org, you can find all kinds of information about the cause for canonization. And the other reason we wrote the book was really to 
you know, for those individuals and their families that are struggling from the scourge of alcoholism or addiction, by reading what happened to us, we hope that they will find hope and strength and courage to reach out and get help. And then lastly, like you mentioned, alluded to earlier, uh, miracles are not just things we read about that happened centuries ago. They're happening every day. Mm -hmm. And even for the most devout, well, by hearing this beautiful story of God's grace and mercy, you know, maybe bring them one step closer on their journey. Yeah, amen. <laughs> uh, my first child was supposed to have all kinds of problems before she was born. She had a, a chromosomal trisomy, and a lot of people were praying for her, um, and she turned out just fine. And it was like a you know five percent chance. And I remember the the doctor who was you know the best doctor in Boston on this one thing at the Brigham and Women's Hospital is saying like you know most people just start over, meaning you should ab abort this child. And, you know, and it's not going to work. And we, a lot of people in our families were praying and praying and praying. And now we had this miracle child. And I know that another person in the next room might have the same situation. It turned out different. But but I only have my own experience to talk about. And you only have your experience to talk about. So I, I hope that your very powerful message and this wonderful book um, reaches as many listeners as we have. There's always a few thousand people around the world who download this. And uh, the book is called You're a Miracle. It's written by Joe McGivney. And if you go to fathermichaelmcgivney.org, uh, Father you'll see the short movie called The American Blessed. It's less than half an hour long. It's a really beautiful film about um, Father Michael and the foundation of the Knights of Columbus. Um, so I want to thank you so much for writing it and sharing and sharing it because, you know, you have to say a lot of um, things that you would consider, you know, some people say like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of these things. But you're like, no, this is the work of God. This is I'm a sinner. And guess what? I'm a sinner, too. And so is every single listener to our show today. Uh, so thank you, Joe. And would you like to close us uh, in a prayer? I would. Thank you very much, Chris. Um... If it's okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to read the prayer for canonization of blessed Michael McGivney. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, protector of the poor, and defender of the widow and orphan, you called your priest, blessed Michael McGivney, to be an apostle of Christian family life, and to lead the young to the generous service of their neighbor. Through the example of his life and virtue, may we follow your son, Jesus Christ, more closely, fulfilling his commandment of charity and building up his body, which is the church. Let the inspiration of your servant prompt us to greater confidence in your love so that we may continue his work of caring for the needy and the outcast. We humbly ask that you glorify blessed Michael McGivney on earth according to the design of your holy will. Through his intercession, grant the favor I now present. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Michael McGivney, pray for us. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you, and hail. Chris O'Dinitz and Joe McGivney recorded this conversation, episode 80, on Monday, January 22, 2024. It was the feast day of St. Vincent of Saragossa, a 4th century Spanish martyr under Roman Emperor Diocletian. This episode will be published on February 29th, Leap Day, also the feast day of 5th century St. John Cassian, the erudite mystic who helped spread monastic tradition in the West. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Find their music at www.gscoasterband.com. And our logo, the image of the dog, is from the Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. Thanks for listening. Send me an email to almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I'd love to read it. And may God bless you and your family. Talk to you next time and enjoy our blessed Lent. This 
This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing.